Welcome once again to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. Our job here is to bring you stories of men and women who are putting their lives in danger to defend democracy. And our hope is that as you hear their stories, it'll inspire you to use your life to better the lives of other people. My name is Ivan Mawarire, and I'm a pastor from Zimbabwe, where I stood up in 2016 against the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe. I was arrested, tortured, and charged with treason, and decided to carry on advocating for those who were oppressed. The story you're about to hear is an incredible story of a young man from Egypt. His name is Abdelrahman Al-Gendi. Gendi, as we shall call him, Abdel Rahman, thank you so much for being here with me on the front lines of freedom today. Your story is just amazing. And I want us to start straight away and just talk about this arrest that happened when you were just 17. How did you end up getting arrested at, you know, at this protest that you were at? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So when I was 17 in 2013, a military coup had happened in Egypt and ousted the elected president after the 25th of January revolution. And at the time, um, I wasn't very political, like my family was pro-revolution, but we didn't really take part in many protests. So after the military coup, one of my friends, um, a very close friend, her father was murdered uh, in one of the massacres. Uh, and that was sort of a turning point for me. She was a really close friend and I saw how that affected her and, and kind of destroyed her life, basically. And when I went to attend the funeral of the father, the funeral turned into a protest. That was sort of the, the first protest that I really attended. So the, the, the people who attended the funeral started like chanting and banging on cars and just writing in general. That was kind of the the moment that I felt that I wanted to do more of that, it was more of a, it was a bit of a cathartic experience, all the anger that I was feeling towards what happened. And then from that moment forward, it was in August, 2013, I started getting more into this revolutionary identity that I started seeing myself as. I started reading more about the revolution and what happened since 2011. I was vaguely aware, but I wasn't very educated about exactly what happened. What had happened in 2011? Before that, there was for 30 years a dictator called Hosni Mubarak who ruled Egypt. It was pretty bad. We have a, a whole department called National Security Department that are known for torturing opposition, for kidnapping them, putting them in underground torture dungeons. So that was pretty notorious. And that was sort of what sparked the revolution in, in 25th of January 2011. That is the, the National Day of the Police in Egypt. So people symbolically chose that day to start riots all over Egypt. And then that kind of emerged into the 25th of January revolution and it just grew into the biggest revolution in Egyptian uh, modern history. And from then on, it, it started like going uphill first and then we had elections. We elected a president, but then because the president was from the Muslim Brotherhood, a lot of stuff started happening. They started aggravating people. And when that happened, people started protesting again. So what happened is the army kind of stepped in and took over the whole thing. Like we were kind of playing together and the army just like came in and they were like, okay, we're just going to take this back again. And they just did this military coup and then they took me back and it was even way, way worse than it was even before the revolution. So there were like hundreds of political prisoners. Now there are tens of thousands of political prisoners. The official numbers say 65,000 political prisoners at any given time. So the situation became like hundreds and hundreds of times worse. 
than it was even before the revolution. So this is you now at this protest, and this really becomes something that resonates with you. And, and you were like 15 at that time, right? Yeah, I was 15 at the time of the revolution and 17 at the time of the protest that I was arrested from. Now, the protest that you were arrested from, your parents didn't want you to go there. Tell me about how you eventually find yourself at the protest. Yeah, on that day in the morning, I was, I was pretty angry because also a teacher that I really loved was arrested earlier. So I decided that I wanted to attend this protest. October 6th is the military day, like the national military day or armed forces day in Egypt. So again, it was also a symbolic kind of protest uh, against the military coup, basically. So I wanted to do that, but it was very dangerous because it was Ramses area and that's very close to Tahrir Square. And like the closer you get to Tahrir with, prote with protesting, uh, the more brutal the police are. They start shooting live bullets and so on and getting very vicious with arrest. So they started kind of, we, we had this like fight or argument in the morning and eventually... Uh, my mother asked my father to like accompany me to the protest so that he keeps me safe and then make sure that we leave uh, the area safely. Uh, I didn't want to be there, but like my mom kind of pressured him. So he did it and we went together. And the agreement was that I, I wouldn't leave the car. I would just like attend from inside the car. We'll be around the protest, uh, but I'll be in the car so we can leave if, if anything happens or the situation escalates. Now, you were sitting in the car and you were taking a video of the protest and kind of talking to your dad or at least talking loudly about what was happening. You know, just the whole thing of taking a video, you wanted to keep that or there was you were thinking, I'm, I've got to show this to someone. At, at the particular moment, it was just really like a teenager feeling very excited of having the thrilling footage of, you know, on, on ground action. So I was like seeing the. Uh, the protesters, you know, having these banners and flags and kind of just like positioning themselves and chanting. It was exciting like that. So I took out my phone. I was shooting a video from my uh, window. I just rolled it down, started shooting a video and kind of talking to my father about it loudly. And then I didn't notice that in, in Egypt, the intelligence officers and guards, they wear plain clothes. So you can't tell that they're actually police officers uh, because they have no uniform. So one of them or two of them were standing right next to me and I didn't notice uh, they assumed that I was um, shooting a video for some sort of like outlet or news outlet trying to expose what, what's happening and so on. Um, that's what I understood later because at the moment I was just shooting the video and then the door was banged open. I was dragged out of the car and then they started kicking me and beating me. They grabbed the phone and I, I was very overwhelmed. I just didn't understand what was happening. Like I couldn't even kind of comprehend what was happening. I always tell people, it's like you're always watching the news and seeing these things happen to other people. And you never really imagine yourself being the subject of this. Thing. But at the moment, I didn't understand. I was just like, oh my God, I'm being arrested. I'm being arrested. What's happening? Uh, even though they were kicking me and I couldn't even feel the pain. I only felt that later. I was just very shocked by what was happening. Now your dad gets taken as well at this, this point. Tell me about how that happens. They started like hauling me away and, and just like walking away with me. So my dad leaves the car. He wasn't arrested at that point. And then he chases after me and, and starts grabbing me, like yelling at them to leave me. He didn't do anything. He's my son. He didn't do anything. So eventually they just arrest him too, just because he didn't like want to let go. Uh, and they just put us in this building called uh, Ramsey's Telecom Central building. They kept this in a small room underground, which was like the basis for the task force on that day. They just kept us there for eight hours up until 9 p.m. And we, we had no idea what was going to happen then. Um, up until the moment they took us out, they kept telling us, we'll just let you go later. And that's kind of the technique that they do. They tell you that it's okay, so you comply. Uh, they just tell you, we're going to let you out later. We're just keeping you now here because it's crazy outside. Uh, so you just sit quiet and you don't really like give them you know 
a headache. And then eventually at 9 p.m., they took us out of the, the building. They put us in a transport vehicle and took us to the police station. Again, telling us we're just going there to kind of finish the processing. Uh, they just release you from the station. You don't have to worry about anything. So we arrived at the station. And once we got in, there were like tens and tens of people, a lot of them being shot wounded just bleeding on the ground uh, it was crazy and then we thought that must be like something different like we're not like this is too crazy for us to be part of that right but then yeah we, what we learned later is like in those days in egypt all the big protests what they do is they open one case they mass arrest people throughout the day from the morning until night everyone around the protest who was passing there who was part of it who wasn't if your luck like gets you arrested on that day you're going to be put in the same case at the end of the day and we were called October 2013 case and 68 people were put on it in it including five minors and four girls and I was a minor and then I wasn't treated as a minor at the time because the officer that arrested me broke my ID and I didn't have it with so they put me in the case as an adult by mistake um, then we moved on from there from the police station they took us to a military camp in the middle of the desert we went through several hearings and then they gave us 15 days of pretrial detention um, we remained at a cell there for 10 days in, in the craziest conditions we were piled on top of each other in a four by five meter square cell piled on top of each other Yes, literally. Like when I'm when I'm writing about this topic and I say pile or we slept in layers, people think I'm speaking in metaphors. We were literally at, at one point there were like three people, like three layers of human beings on top of each other. We had to leave like a sleep in one layer and then another layer would be kind of spread over it and then a third layer would be like sprinkled through the cell because that's how small it was and and spent ten days in that. Uh, particular cell. Like every time I look back at it, I have no idea up until now how we survived that particular cell. Uh, it was the craziest conditions that I stayed in. Like there was a lot of violence, but I just have no idea how humanely possible to, to just have passed through 10 days of this kind of over each other in that moment and just like survive it. I just really have no idea up until now. I mean, I, I'm just shocked listening to what you're saying, but this turns into a much bigger ordeal than you had even imagined, even after the arrest. And it becomes literally years of incarceration. You were tried and convicted and you, you and your dad are now together in prison. And I'm trying to figure out your mom, your poor mom, who really just wanted your safety, now has both her husband and her son in prison. And she's obviously having now to try and keep your spirits up, keep her spirits up. Tell me about how that played out. What did she go through? How did you guys b relate with her, you know, with what she was going through? It was extremely hard for my mom, like aside from the very extremely distressful emotional and mental circumstances. My mom has a really bad heart condition before prison. She couldn't even leave the house and walk in the sun. We'd have to like go to the car first to turn on the AC. So like the few steps that she walks to the car, she has like the, the cold, you know, air inside to keep her chill. So the, the idea of standing in visitation lines and those last for at least five to six hours. Some people will come the night before and camp in front of prison so they can like visit the relatives the following day. Uh, so my mom would have to come to stand uh, holding all those like plastic, heavy plastic bags that had my and my father's stuff. Wait in that line for five to six hours and just under the raging sun uh, and then go in just to visit us for maybe five, ten minutes. Sometimes in some prisons, it reached like 20, 30 minutes. That was like the best thing. But most prisons were like five, 10 minute visitation time. And then she'd leave again and have to travel back to, because the prison was very far away from where we lived. So that was, that was taking a huge toll on her health, on her physical health. 
I remember one point she's like, I, this is a miracle that I'm still alive. She tell me, I think, I don't know how God has given me this like magical power to survive this because scientifically or medically speaking, I should have died with whatever like um, effort my body is exerting all those years. But eventually my mom, my mom, my mom is extremely powerful. She was one of the major support systems that I relied on uh, in prison because very fast, like she was very, she had this meltdown at the start, but very fast she kind of um, transitioned back from it and started to talk to me about how this shouldn't really stop you from what you're doing with your university, with studying, with whatever, started trying to give me hope on like one day I'll go out and this all would be something greater. I'll be look back, looking back at this and feeling proud that I was arrested because of something I believe. She really switched very impressively because I thought my mom is not uh, like a revolutionary herself. Like she wasn't really raised in a way that she'd be like rebelling and stuff. But I, I was very impressed by how my mom, her character, she's just an introvert and she wasn't really social. So the way she transitioned into this kind of very resilient figure who even other families of other prisoners would turn to her for support to just like talk to her. And she started like this whole network between prisoner families, just like talking to people, trying to, you know, uh, coordinate with them, how we get the visit, the food and the visitation, talking to them if any of them like had something going on. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of my own story and I remember the same thing happening, you know, with me, which before I started, my parents didn't want me to get involved. But once I had been arrested and I was going through it, they came on side. And I'm just I'm just amazed to hear, I mean, your mom took it to the next level. The other prisoners now really, you know, connecting with her and getting hope from her. And then her beginning to, you know, kind of network with other people, you know, outside as well. That That is actually a, a really inspiring outcome of this situation. But now you have to cope for a much longer period in prison. First of all, your dad is in prison with you, but something happens after three years in prison. Your dad is released. How did that come about? Yeah. So after one year in prison, the entire case got sentenced to 15 years for unlawful assembly. Um, that was the first sentence that we received. And then in the following year, our final appeal got rejected. In, uh, in Egypt, we have something called the Court of Cassation. That's like the highest court in Egypt. And once they reject the appeal. There is nothing more to be done except for a presidential pardon or you'd be spending a entire sentence. 2017, there was a lot of international pressure about human rights situation in Egypt and Egypt was kind of you know, negotiating funding and stuff like that as it always happens. So they ended up doing this thing called um, the Presidential Pardon Committee for Political Prisoners. Um, so they release um, just a random number of different cases to kind of appease international opinion. So they'd release some sanctions that they kind of imposed uh, upon them. So what happened, thankfully, my father was one of the people who were randomly released in one of those presidential pardon lists in 2017 in March, after he had spent um, three years and a bit in prison, in which I really carried all the guilt of having him there in the first place. I spent all those carrying the guilt of, I did this. I would, at moments, just not even bear to look at him because I, I couldn't like bear how hard it was to just like see him there and know I was the one who put him there. So the day he was released was an extremely confusing day, really. It was extremely uh, cathartic and I felt so much relief. But on the other hand, I just felt like orphaned in a way in prison. Like this is the first time in prison I'm completely on my own because prison is not a place they can easily make friends. Like having someone that's like a family figure with you in there uh, is something that I didn't know its value. Obviously, it's horrible, but I didn't know its value until my dad left. 
And now you have to be really careful about everyone because you don't know 100% of everyone has your back or not. Prison really breaks people all the time. You just can't predict. You have to look out for yourself, basically, and, and not having this kind of, um, you know, pillar to, 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 to have your back. Um, I didn't realize that until he left. But it was a really, really um, great moment and turning moment in the story because when he was released, obviously, that took off a lot of pressure off my mom. Uh, on the outside, he was now able to shoulder some of that burden. Yeah, and then I just went on on my way in prison alone. I would I would like joke about it and tell people I can finally become a professional prisoner now that I don't have my father with me. Now I can, I can enjoy my incarceration and just like do <laughs> and riot and just like school. Uh, Gendy, you you know what? I I love the way you look back on that, and even during that time, you know, using that kind of humor to cope and to you know to really find the strength to to face what you were facing. Talk to us a little bit about that coping mechanism because I think this is what drew my attention to your story when I first saw it is what you were doing to cope. Uh first of all I know that you studied whilst you were in there. So walk us through what you studied and then the other stuff that you've done, you know, that you did for years and and that you still do today that allowed you to cope. Yeah, I started so when I was arrested I had a scholarship uh, to the German University in Cairo to study mechatronics engineering. Uh, I hadn't started at all. Like my first day, the freshman year was on 7th of October. So I literally was arrested one day before my first day as a freshman. So in, in Egyptian prisons, they have a law that allows uh, students to sit for their final exams in prison. Uh, that was a pre-existing law. Like it, it wasn't created for political prisoners. Already people could take advantage of it. So after several campaigns, they allowed political prisoners to do the same. So I applied and I started studying, uh, but then unfortunately the German university revoked my scholarship after I got sentenced and they didn't want to, like they didn't allow me to sit for exams. So I lost that first year. I had uh, like my score in, in, the, in, my, in high school in Egypt, we don't go by GPAs, we do percentages. So my score was 99.7% and I was on the top of my school. So I had a really good public program that I was admitted to. I chose the scholarship, but I had that one available. So I switched to that one. And then I started from scratch uh, on the second year in prison in Ain Shams University studying mechanical engineering. Um, everyone was really against that. Everyone told me this is a really stupid, can you study mechanical engineering in prison? Mechanical engineering, it's practical. You need to be campus. People fail on campus. How are you going to do it in prison? Like, doesn't make any sense. You started pushing me to do something more theoretical, something like political science kind of stuff, economics, study something that you can actually do in prison. But that, that was part of what I thought that was like the resistance part that I kept thinking about. Like, I don't want them to take this thing away from me. I worked so hard to get to this particular college and program. And I really wanted to study this. And I was stubborn like that. I just thought, I don't want them to take this away from me. I'll just keep doing it until I can't anymore. And then I'll maybe not do it or take a switch into something else. But I don't know if I can just like give it up like that from the start without even like, oh, I told them, I told my mom next visit that like, I'm, I'm going to do it. Just like apply for me and I'm going to sit for the exams. And then they started bringing me my study material. It was really hard to get stuff in. Technically, I'm allowed my study material. Guards, they, they, they kind of start um, pressuring you to pay them or to bribe them. So they allow your basic rights in. So I had to pay so much money just to afford very basic rights, like my study material to study and sit for my final exam. Thankfully, that happened. I started having the study references, the lecture notes, the books and everything. Most of the time, I was in a very cramped cell. Like the, the typical cell had 30 centimeter wide sleeping spaces. So I could sleep literally like we called it the edge of a sword, like would sleep on our edges like this with knees very straight. We can even bend our knees, which was an upgrade from sleeping on top of each other, I guess. But yeah, but it was really hard to study in that position. Um, so I had to kind of um, 
just like sit with my friends, we share like the same sleeping spot. So there's three of us, for example, and then we take rotational shifts uh, sleeping or using them. So each of us will get like the luxurious tiny centimeter, you know, space. So I can study for a bit and then we can switch and then we can like sit down. Sometimes I go by the bathroom. There was like the soft light we had at night when lights were off. So I'd go like sit by the bathroom, just like squat there and study so I can see my study material where people slept because it was very noisy in the morning. I spent, and then year after year, I sat for my exams and somehow I passed. And then uh, it was, it was like very terrorizing at the start because engineering is so hard, uh, especially if you don't have anyone to explain anything to you. I had to self-learn it. I would spend 10 hours like studying things that would take 10 minutes. So you had no tutor, you had no instructor, no instruction manuals. You just had to figure out a whole engineering degree on your own. Exactly. It was just me and the papers and and I had time, so I just spent it doing that. And it was just like like deciphering. You know, I would be just like trying stuff out. I'd see a problem, I'd be like, maybe they're doing this, maybe they're doing that. And I'd try like maybe 15 different iterations until I get it like, uh-huh, that's what they're doing here. And then I'd figure out some sort of hypothesis of how it's working and started testing it. If it holds, I started like using it in problems. So it took a lot of time uh, to figure out how things are being done. But I had time because it was prison. And because it was prison, that was the most fun thing I had really. And it really gave me a lot of um, motivation just thinking that I'm not being held back. That's one of the major things that kind of depress you in prison. The idea that everyone else is moving forward with their lives. Your friends are, you know, they're moving on, they're getting their degrees, they're getting married, they're doing stuff. And you're just stuck the start line and not even you're not even able to take any step ahead so just pursuing my degree allowed me to kind of get into that space of you know i'm not being held behind 100 percent. at least i'm kind of walking parallel in this parallel universe but at least i'm walking forward and moving forward how long did it take you to finally complete that degree and graduate i took five years that's that's the actual degree time like it is a five-year degree and when i got to 2019 um they thankfully allowed me to do a theoretical graduation project like a research project instead of like an actual practical thing uh, because they, they have been following my progress from year one and they were really sympathetic. they thought it was a, is a miracle really because people fail at that at the university all the time they took several they took like six seven years to pass and the fact that i did it in the same like allocated amount of years was very impressive to me I finished that. I, I did the graduation project and I graduated in July uh, 2019 and got my baccalaureate um, of science and mechanical engineering from prison just as I started in prison and never really set foot on campus, not even once. But but now the the real core of how you coped for me is is what is phenomenal, the writing. Tell me about that. How did you start and some of the experiences you had writing? What were you writing about and why were you writing? I started writing my first piece in 2014 when we were tried for the first time. So the first court hearing that we were transported to, when we were going back, um, I was handcuffed to my father and I was just like looking at the handcuff. It was so surreal, the idea that I'm in handcuffs in a transport vehicle with my father. I just came from standing in a cage for hours and it just got really suffocating. It felt just like all too much. And then um, I started thinking of this line of myself looking at the reflection of my face and the, the silver of the handcuff. So I went back and kind of scribbled that line and it turned into a whole piece uh, that I smuggled for the visit next time. Uh, the following visit, my sister took it. I hid it in the dirty laundry and that kind of became the way uh, I'd hide my stuff. And then my sister published it on Facebook. It had a lot of reactions. It went like, semi-viral at the time. I didn't have many followers, but it really took off. And a lot of people started writing and giving me feedback. And she came back the next visit and told me about the reactions. And then they started printing some of the comments on Facebook and the letters that my friends wrote and bringing them to me. 
So it was, um, it really made so much difference to me, the fact that I could write and affect people in any capacity. I had no idea I could do that. And then just reading, having this lifeline of feedback coming in from the outside world, just tied to what I was experienced in prison, gave it so much meaning that I couldn't imagine uh, possible. So I started doing this on a weekly basis. Every visit, I'd write something new about my experiences in prison and send it out. And then they bring me the feedback the following visit. They started printing it and, and then we'd smuggle it in again. And then when we got sentenced and stuff got really, really hard and the violence got really, really hard, I started thinking more of this as an act of resistance and not just a coping mechanism. After the welcome party that they did for us, which is a torture party they do for newly convicted prisoners when they entered the maximum security prison for the first time, that was a really, that was the peak of violence I witnessed uh, in prison. It got me really very broken and very angry at the same time. So I started thinking, where do those stories go? It became the question that I'm really grappling with all the time. Where do untold stories go? Like if, I, if no one tells the story of what I just witnessed here, what happened to us, does it just cease to exist? Because I think that history is, is relative because it only happens if at least one person knows about it. And if no one tells that story, does it just like disappear like it never happened? And then I started thinking about that a lot, how they're erasing us purposefully outside in state propaganda and the media and everything in all state channels, basically. They say we're terrorists. They say all those lies about us. They're erasing the, the 25th of January revolution from school curricula. So the growing generations have no idea what happened in that period. But then I started thinking of counter narratives as a mode of resistance. And that sort of became the thing that I would be doing up until now. I started documenting and writing everything that I witnessed uh, in prison and sending them out. And then they'd be published uh, on Facebook first until up in 2018. In, uh, an independent journalism platform called Mother Muslim in Egypt, which is one of the few leading independent forms still remaining. They're also targeted and arrested all the time. But they took my pieces then and they published a piece by me called Stars in the World that I talked how we can change the world. It was like basically ruminations about the idea of changing the world and what it really means and how we can do it, small scale, scale. And I, I wrote it in 10 uh, pages in prison, handwritten. Um, and then there was a like a search that came and I had to throw them away. I, I sent them to one of my friends and he threw them in the toilet, basically. So I had to rewrite the 10 pages again. So you wrote the piece, completed it, and your friend was reviewing it for you. But then a search came and your, your friend obviously didn't want to get caught with it and he threw it down the toilet. Exactly. And it's real. Like anyone who writes knows how just impossible to kind of rekindle the same inspiration you had writing the first draft that kind of inspired you to write it. I had to do it because it was so much effort and I was really happy with the piece. So I did it. Uh, and then my sister submitted it to this um, competition called World Youth Essay Competition in 2018. And it became a finalist, actually, which was really cool because I, I had no like resources or whatever. I was just like writing from my head and using quotes that I memorized and stuff. So then Mother Monster picked that piece up and published it on their platform. And from then on, it emerged this sort of uh, relationship where I started writing like a contributing writer for Mother Monster from prison. So I started smuggling pieces. They sometimes send me back edits. Then my sister would smuggle them and then I'd send them back finished pieces and they published them. Uh, it went back and forth for two, two more years up until I was uh, released. I think I published around six pieces from prison with them. Aside from the like social media stuff, I would still write more stuff uh, for social media in general and more professionally with Mother. So when I got, I started writing officially uh, with Mother. But the period in prison writing became this. It was my survival mechanism. It was a coping mechanism and also a resistance method because it gave everything a meaning. Because while I was doing that, I started thinking, I want this to be a project one day. I settled on this, that what I'm doing right now needs to be a memoir. This story needs to be commemorated and, and documented in, in one project uh, that people would look at, they would read, and then they would know what happened in the particular period. 
victory. Because if I didn't do that, I thought I had that responsibility. Because if if I have the storytelling skill and I have the language skill and I have the the firsthand experience, I thought I had that to be at least that one person who bears witness to this counter history without being told officially. So it kind of got me through this idea that those six years that I didn't know were six up until then, I thought they were 15, that they were not for nothing. They were kind of even in my head, just pouring into something bigger, this memoir project. And then I started walking around prison, looking at it from that lens, really. Like whatever's happening right now, this is a chapter in the memoir. They're searching us, they're stomping on us or beating us. Think, well, at least I can make a really decent chapter out of the scene or something will be happening and I choose not to give up or to fight back because... This is the way I want the chapter to unfold. In a really weird way, I started not only writing my experiences, but the experiences sort of started writing my life back. Like the memoir itself, the idea of it started dictating how I'm making choices in prison. And it was a mental trick, but it really worked in how I, I kind of like, you know, you deceive your brain in any way you can in prison. This idea of radical hope, you just have to do whatever is possible to kind of hold on to this radical hope so you don't break down. I certainly identify with what you're saying, but you put it so well and and, and there's such a sense of purpose uh, behind the time that really, uh, you know, can be looked at as wasted time. And yet it's become very productive time. We're going to come to the end of our conversation, Gandhi, but, you know, you got released uh, and it was a total of six years that you were in prison and your release itself was quite miraculous. You know, real quick walk us through that as as we as we come to the to the end of our conversation yeah it, it was it was um, very absurd and random just as the moment i was arrested i woke up one day it was again a lot of international pressure happening internationally and then something happened in the public prosecution office where they decided to dedicate a whatsapp number for human rights violation a sort of an attempt to appease public opinion uh, i woke up one day i got the state newspaper that they allowed us in prison and i saw the number uh, so i just like uh, cut it out i took the next visit and gave it to my parents and asked them to submit the appeal as i mentioned at the start i was arrested as a minor but was mistried as an adult because of my id and my parents had this appeal that they would submit over and over everywhere, showing them how I was mistried and I should be retried as a minor. And that was never looked into all those years. So I just asked my father to just like submit it again. We have nothing to lose. So he took it and they felt like very sorry for me because they thought I was, you know, being delusional and just holding on, you know, to just whatever hope there is. Uh, so he just did it to appease me. He did it. And then it took like a complaint number. They filed it under a number and sent him to go check it, check it out. Public prosecution office, North Cairo. He did that. And randomly, uh, the head prosecutor of North Cairo was walking in his office at the day. And my father saw him while he was arguing with the guards who were telling him there was nothing going on. You should go home. It didn't move yet. Uh, so he just kind of jumped at the guy and was like, I want to talk. So the guards held him back because these guys in Egypt don't talk. They treat it like gods. They just don't talk to regular citizens. Uh, and the guy was having a good day. So he just told him to let him be and that he's going to meet. He sat with my father and my father gave him a rundown of everything that happened. And the guy miraculously sent a guard to fetch the case file. He looked at it, he kind of sifted through it and was like, oh, wow, he was a minor. That doesn't normally happen, right? That that they would actually go and pull the file. They would just be like, yeah, whatever, we don't have time for this. But he does it and he agrees that, wait, he was a minor. Exactly. And that was that random. That was the, the only thing that needed to be done for me to be released. I would have been released years ago if anyone cared enough to do this. Uh, but the whole, it was so miraculous because it was so random that my father went there on that day that the guy agreed to meet him when he doesn't 
really meet people. They agreed to fetch the case file and look at it. It was so absurd how I, I get to be here today when like 99.9% I would have been the likely scenario that I opened for my 10th year, like everyone else in my case. But I wasn't that lucky. One week later, they came to my cell, knocked on the door and told me my 15 year sentence was uh, terminated. And then I was, I went to a hearing they uh, released me on pale and then ordered my retrial as a, as a minor. And I was re-sentenced to five years. But since I had already spent six years, uh, the old me a year, basically. <laughs> and then they just like, let me go, finally. How unbelievable was that for you the day you were told, hey, you're going home? It was, it was as unbelievable as the day I was arrested. Like people tell me, Whenever they ask me, um, can you believe that you were released? I tell them, I can't even believe I was arrested in the first place. I'm still grappling with that. Like, I'm, I'm back in 2013. When they told me, I, I almost like yelled at the guy. And I was like, we don't joke about that. Because I thought he was pranking me. Because they do that sometimes in prison. Just kind of cruel jokes. They run on prisoners. Uh, and I didn't believe until he got me the actual paper and showed me the order of termination of my sentence and retrial. So yeah, it was it was surreal i think up until this moment i just sometimes you know just stand still and think like what the hell happened you know like, all of it like, what's man, happened oh, oh man my- oh man what a story you're right now uh, at the university of pittsburgh you were studying there you'll be graduating soon what are you studying yeah so i'm doing a creative writing mfa at the university of pittsburgh it's my first year but it's a three-year program so i have two more years I am working on that memoir finally, that project that I was dreaming of all the prison. Uh, I got out and um, I left the country and then I started uh, writing, writing more. And then I started applying to MFAs because um, I thought it was a very, it's a great environment that we don't have access to, of resources, of writing, environment, workshopping, and just like a writing community that could support me, you know, have my words, you know, kind of workshop, I get feedback on them. And then also I have a huge market here to talk to because I think it's really important for people to learn about what's happening in Egypt, especially in a country whose government is directly involved with what's happening in Egypt, since Egypt is like the third recipient of US military fund. Uh, So I am trying now to write that memoir. I'm working on it right now. And then I'm planning to get it published, hopefully. That's the plan. I want to spread those counter-narratives that I've been thinking of all the time in prison. I want to talk more about what's happening in Egypt. I want to spread that awareness. And I want to help get my friends in prison get released, the ones that are still rotting and languishing behind bars till now, because they weren't below 18 and they weren't lucky enough that their fathers could like stumble into the head prosecutor and get them with a miracle. There are tens and tens of thousands of political prisoners. Uh, I'm not my story, though it sounds incredible. It's not unique. Unfortunately, it's one of tens of thousands. And that's what I try to tell people here. You drop your jaws and you think, wow, this is amazing. But really, people, tens of thousands of people are undergoing this every single day in prisons. And you're somehow implicit. Uh, You're complicit in it. You're sometimes unknowingly supporting things that perpetuate that situation in Egypt. Um, So that's what I'm trying to do right now. A lot of advocacy work and writing work Hopefully that will culminate into this uh, project of the memoir that I've been dreaming about and that will actually help me survive prison in the first place. Abdel Rahman Elgendi, I have to tell you how amazing a person you are, a hu- amazing a human being you are. Your humility, your uh, resilience, your vision uh, and your creativity. I'm thankful that we had the opportunity to talk and and that uh, everyone who follows us here at the front lines of freedom has had the honor of hearing your story. I am looking forward to your memoir. 
uh, which I know that you are working on and one day very soon actually will be printed out into a book that millions of people can read. But let me thank you so much for what you have done, but more importantly, what you are using your experiences for, to be a voice for your friends, to be a voice for those who are unheard. And like you said earlier on, to tell the stories that are not told, that question you asked earlier struck me right at the core where do the untold stories go? What happens to those stories? And you are the voice that is representing those stories, a true hero in our eyes. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that as you listened to that story, you felt a sense of purpose, a sense of looking around at your own situations and trying to figure out how you could make everything happening around you, whether good or bad, be of use to other people in benefiting their lives. Thank you so much again for being with us here. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.